Good morning. This is Lesson 37, and we are rapidly reaching the end of the Gospel of Mark. This particular text is one that is worthy of a series of messages, and I'm sure you would understand that as you, as you read it and ponder it. I also should say that uh, your notes, if you think your notes are confused, you should have seen my earlier version. I had, I had a parallel version of all of the Gospels going through all of this account, and our Tuesday Bible study convinced me as they were flipping their pages back and forth, trying to figure out where they were, that that wouldn't go. So I ended up giving you a chart at the back. And on the left-hand side of that chart, you'll see Mark's presentation and and generally bolded with his major points. And then on the right uh, columns, you'll see Matthew, Luke, and John. And I, I build into that just those things which those particular Gospels add to the account so that when you look across, you see kind of the full version of that. And I'll try to also uh, respect that as I go through this message. If you stop and think about it, this is really the high point of the Bible. I mean, all of the Old Testament points to the coming of Messiah and to his death. We are there. When you look back from the New Testament, you look back to this event. There is no greater high water mark in the Bible than the account of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not only a great text, it is a great event for all mankind. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the Christian life for the believer. When I look at this, I, I look at, at the text that I've uh, at least selected as coming in four phases. The first phase is not in the Gospel of Mark, and that is the, uh, the phase of uh, the, uh, the women who are weeping on the road to Golgotha uh, coming out of Jerusalem. Then the second phase is the crucifixion itself, and by that I mean the actual process by which Jesus is nailed to the cross and and the execution begins. The third uh, phase is the agony uh, and suffering and death of our Lord Jesus, and the fourth phase is the taking down of the body and his uh, burial um, as we see it uh, uh, described in the scriptures. So, uh, really, uh, ask the Lord as we come to this text to really grip our hearts. This is a very, very significant text. No message is more important than the message of the cross. Paul says, this is my message. I preach Christ and Christ crucified. There is no other message. There is no other, there is no other message to move on to. This is the message and it is the message which uh, we are privileged to uh, to read and to believe in. Uh, let me make some uh, observations. By the way, I'm going to throw those. Uh, you'll see that I'm throwing in some slides, and all they are is is a capture of of the uh, of the chart that I've given you before I make my observations. I am not getting a cut from any ophthalmologist uh, that you will rush to and say, I'm, I can't read this page. I'm just trying to show you which page it is because it's in your notes. 
Uh, and then the observations will be on the, the PowerPoint slides. So let's talk for a moment about the uh, weeping women on the road to Golgotha, the women of Jerusalem. The text tells us that there was a, a, a great crowd that followed Jesus uh, as he made his way there. That crowd was obviously a mixed crowd. There would be those like the religious leaders who had orchestrated the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. There would be some of those in the crowd who had yelled, crucify, crucify. But there would also be a number of those people who have followed Jesus from Galilee uh, to Jerusalem, and many of those would be women, as we see uh, in our text. And, and some would be people, in my opinion, like Joseph of Arimathea, people who had really invested themselves in Jesus and they're puzzled and perplexed. They may be following at a distance like some of the disciples and even the women, but they're following. So you have this mixed crowd. But Luke chooses to pick out this group of, of women who are weeping and wailing. And they have the insight to recognize the evil, the wrongness, as it were, of what's taking place. They are weeping for Jesus because they see it is terribly wrong. And Jesus then turns to them and says, you ought not to be weeping for me. You ought to be weeping for yourselves, women of Jerusalem. Because a judgment is coming that is going to be terrible uh, that that city and, and those unbelievers in the city in particular will experience. So Jesus picks up the words that you find in those Old Testament texts in Isaiah chapter 2 and Hosea chapter 10. He picks up the wording to describe that terrible day of judgment. It's also that day that our Lord is referring to when he comes into Jerusalem and he weeps for the city and said, oh, that you had recognized the day of your visitation. 70 AD is going to be a day of judgment for Jerusalem and it will be a terrible, terrible day. Jesus rightly says to them, the real weeping and mourning ought to be for those who reject me and who face the judgment which is yet to come on this city. So you have the, the, the weeping women, and that is sort of the backdrop. Then we come, in a chronological sense, to stage or phase two, where our Lord Jesus is crucified. By the way, I need to turn my notes over so I can follow on my pages. I've actually figured out where I am on this page. Uh, and there's a lot of scripture, but I have all four gospels side by side to, uh, to track the uh, thing along. Notice some of the things that, that, the, that all of the authors or some of them point out with respect to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. First of all, the wine. And by the way, I wasn't trying to be cute, the wine and the sign. I wasn't. It just, that's what it was. The wine is, according to Mark, mixed with myrrh. Uh, in Matthew, mixed with gall, I take it no difference there. And it's sour wine in, in uh, Luke's account. I suspect that that wine had some anesthetic qualities. 
uh, like you would see in the old movies when somebody was going to have an arm removed or whatever and they get them liquored up so that they, you know, somewhat dull to what's going on. That may well be the case. The text says that when Jesus tasted the wine, he didn't drink it. Now, I take it from that that Jesus is not saying, I'm not drinking any of that cheap stuff. I think what he's saying is, I recognize what it's for. It's to dull the pain, and Jesus is not willing to be anesthetized. He is there to experience the full weight of man's sin. There's another offering of wine that comes at the end that ought not to be confused with this. That wine Jesus will accept, but this wine he won't. Here's the thing that was interesting that I picked up from Luke that I had never seen before. Luke's gospel says that the soldiers were mocking Jesus. It's the only gospel that really brings the soldiers into the mockery. It says the soldiers were mocking Jesus, and and in the same in the same verse, it basically is saying they mocked Jesus by offering him wine. It's like they're saying, I propose a toast to Jesus. Here, Jesus, have some wine. And it's like he's the royalty, he's the king, and they're the wine sippers who are checking it out. And so it's a mockery. I don't think that's why Jesus rejected the wine, but it is a part of the mockery process that we see taking place uh, at the cross. Okay, then there's the sign, the inscription that is put on our Lord Jesus' uh, cross. All the Gospels include a reference to the sign, and in essence, there, there's minor differences, but the essence of the sign is Jesus is the King of the Jews. Now, you remember that it's John's Gospel that really goes to work on this, because the religious leaders want the sign to be changed to, this is Jesus who claimed to be, and they would imply falsely, to be the king of the Jews. I have to confess, I call this Pilate's last stand. I mean, finally, finally, gutless Pilate is going to plant his feet and say, what I've written, I've written. I'm not changing my mind. I think Pilate understood this claim of Jesus to be the king of the Jews is at the heart of the opposition to Jesus by the Jewish leaders. And I think it's his final stab, as it were, at them with this thing that they could not deal with. He hangs it out there and makes that sign, in a sense, a a public insult to them, uh, perhaps, as well as to the Lord Jesus. Now, notice also you have in in the uh, crucifixion process the dividing of Jesus' garments. That, again, is mentioned in every gospel. And it is John, once again, who makes the most of it. He does so because he wants us to understand that this is really a fulfillment of the prophecy that we see in Psalm 22, verse 18, where his garments will be divided uh, amongst those who are are crucifying him. So John wants us to see that. But I have a little side note here, and that is this. Some, some of the prophecy that is evidently fulfilled, clearly fulfilled in the crucifixion account, is not tagged that way. In other words, do not expect that every instance of fulfilled prophecy has a marker on it Uh, by the author that says, you do get it. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Sometimes it's said. 
Now, when you come to the dividing of Jesus' garments, none of the other Gospels mentions it fulfills prophecy except John. And he calls our attention to it. I think that what our Lord is doing here is saying to us, I'm not going to spell it all out for you. If you're a student of the Old Testament, if you're a student of the Bible, for goodness sakes, figure it out. There are some things we ought to just look at and say, my goodness, look at how this fulfills the Scriptures. So as we read Psalm 22 or, or 69 or, or Isaiah 52, 53, we look at those and we say, look at here it is. It's fulfilled. So some things we ought to be thinking about and not just waiting for the author to tell us every particular of that. The mocking of Jesus, I guess, to me, is the most interesting uh, of the events and what happens to it as the story unfolds. Now, in Mark's account, and I think Matthew's as well, they're called the passers-by, those who were passing by. Now, if I understand that correctly, you see Jesus' a place of crucifixion is, as it were, along LBJ or along Central Expressway or 190 or something, where, where there's this public place. And people, remember, this is the day of preparation. This is the day when people have a lot to do to prepare for the Passover, right? And so they naturally will be coming and going to and from Jerusalem. And I take it they're passing by. The sign on the cross and the spectacle of all these people must get some rubberneckers to pull off to the side and look. And those passers-by are engaging in the mockery. Now, that's amazing to me. But one of the things that it says is, if these are passers-by and they're saying the things about Jesus that they're saying, Son of God, uh, the, the King of Israel, and, and these kinds of things... Then, then you have to say, they knew something about Jesus, did they not? They knew something about Jesus, and they jump in and join on that. I'm inclined in my mind to distinguish the passers-by from the crowd. In other words, the crowd that followed Jesus out of Jerusalem, including those women that we picked up in Luke, and the passers-by, I'm not sure, are the same group. Now, some may have gotten so interested they joined the group, but it seems to me that it's, an inter- it's a strange thing for us to be told they're passers-by rather than spectators or participants in the crowd. We'll come back to that a little bit. Mark also talks about the chief priests and the experts in the law, the lawyers. Matthew adds the elders to that element. And so what we see is this whole contingent of the Jewish religious leaders, the ones who have opposed Jesus, sought to trip him up, sought to bring about his death. They are a part of the mocking group. And according to Mark as well, the two thieves jump in on it. Not much said, but in effect, it seems like the thieves are are there on the cross They're hearing all the things that are being said, and in effect, at least early in the game, they're saying, yeah, Jesus, if you're who you are, who you say you are, then get us down from here. Mockery from them, initially. Okay, so you've got, uh, in Luke, you've got this this statement about the people uh, who who are there versus the rulers. 
uh, verse 35. The people also stood there watching, but the rulers ridiculed him. Now, I take from that that the instigators of the mockery are the Jewish religious leaders. Now, don't miss this point. Everybody jumps on the mock Jesus bandwagon. Everybody gets on it. But I think they're the instigators, and I think what you see is this crowd that's followed Jesus out, they're watching with wonder and almost silenced by the spectacle, and the religious leaders are like whipping up the crowd. So anyway, from Luke's account, it is not the crowd who is noisy and starts this stuff. It is rather the religious leaders who do so. And then Luke adds the soldiers. Soldiers are watching all this. They get caught up in this wave of anti-Jesus enthusiasm. And now they're mocking him and the offering him the wine is one thing. But in effect, they're saying, yeah, me too. Uh, I'm, I'm in this in the opposing way. So here's the challenge. When you come right down to it, notice what the issues are. No issues about being anti-Rome. None of those phony charges that, that, that brought Jesus before Pilate and got him convicted. Every one of the things that they're throwing in Jesus' face is a claim of Jesus that is true. Is that not right? You are the king of the Jews. You saved others. You talk about destroying the temple and raising up... Hey, those are all true. They're rejecting the truth about Jesus and mocking the truth about Jesus. Not the falsehoods, the truth about who Jesus is. And in effect, what they're saying is, if you were really who you claim to be, then you would do something different than what you're doing. You would come down off that cross from the standpoint of the two criminals and you would save us. And the religious leaders are saying, then we'd believe in you. Boy, almost a rerun, in a sense, of Satan's temptation of Jesus. Uh, and i got to tell you, it would have been tempting for me to come ripping down off that cross and uh, cleaning house. The challenge is that Jesus proved himself by meeting their demands, or in effect, are they not really saying, give us a sign? Are they not really asking Jesus to perform a sign that proves who he is? which is really the essence of what the religious leaders have been saying all along. Prove it. Only they want him to prove it by doing what they say. Here's the irony of this. Jesus is everything he claimed to be. But he proves it by doing the exact opposite of what his opponents prescribe. He proves himself to be the Messiah, a la Isaiah 52 and 53. He proves himself to be the Messiah by staying on the cross, not coming off of it. He saves men by dying for them, not by saving his life. So the reality is Jesus fulfills his role as Messiah by doing exactly the opposite of what men would have prescribed for him as Messiah. So I couldn't help it. I had to do a little application early in the game. How many times do we say to God in our prayers, God, I want you to act, and then we prescribe the way in which we believe God ought to act, and if he does that, we're going to praise him, and we're going we're to know God's at work in our lives. I would suspect 
that much of the time, God answers our prayers in the exact opposite way in which we've asked him to. And it's in doing that that he proves who he is. He is not our servant boy who runs around doing our errands for us. He is our Lord and Master. And when it's over, friends, we're going to say, Praise God, he didn't answer my prayers the way I asked. Certainly didn't do it here. Here's where the really strange thing happens. And I have to tell you, in all the times I've been through these accounts... I've never seen it with the force that I have in this, in this particular time. There is a turning point. I, there, there is, I, I've, I've said to you that there is this kind of buildup in the Old Testament that reaches the cross of Christ, and then the New Testament looks back to that high spot. There is a kind of crescendo that occurs in this, in this crucifixion account a crescendo of emotion, and let's call it anti-Jesus emotion. So that in the process of this, Jesus is crucified, religious leaders stir up the crowds, now the crowds get into it, then the soldiers get into it, then the criminals get into it. When you get to that crisis point, folks, everybody, save a handful, everybody is against Jesus and everybody's on the mockery bandwagon. Are they not? And then all of a sudden... Something changes. And the mood switches. And this circus-like celebration environment dissipates. And when you get to the end of it, people are walking away beating their breasts, saying something horrible has happened today. There is no circus at the end of this account. There is no smiley face at the end of this account. There is a turning point. It starts with the second, whichever one you want to say, the second thief. It's Luke's account, I think, isn't it, that brings that out, Luke 23, 39 through 43. Luke tells us that this other thief who formerly in this process had joined in and railing against Jesus saying, yeah, save yourself and save us. Now all of a sudden, this thief turns to his cohort and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is an innocent man. He's being punished for something he didn't do. We're guilty. And then he turns to Jesus and said, when you get into your kingdom, remember me. Now, folks, that's a strange thing to say to a dying Savior, is it not? That is weird to say to one who is dying, save me. And somehow now, it's Jesus' death that saves him. Not Jesus' self-serving, life-preserving act of coming down off the cross. And then it's seconded by the darkness. So I'm not sure whether I got the chronology right, but if if Luke has it right, you have this turning where that thief has finally sort of weighed the evidence and said, wait, wait, wait a minute. I've, uh, this is the only crucifixion I've attended (laughs) in this capacity, but I've seen some. I've never seen anybody die like this. Something has turned that man around in a, in a remarkable way. And after his words, out go the lights. Three hours of darkness. What do you think that felt like? For those people who were there. What do you think it felt like for those who had been mocking Jesus? Come on down. 
I think it was just dead silence. And people are saying, ooh, this is not good. Uh, for them, it wasn't. And then, you notice uh, in the third phase, which I call Jesus' agony and death, you now have the, the scene of the, uh, the great spiritual suffering of our Lord and of the way in which our Lord gives up his life. So look at some of the things. One is this whole Elijah thing. In our text, it reads, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. In Matthew, it reads, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. El is the word for God. I is the word for my, my God, my God. Nobody in that scholarly religious crowd says, hmm, that sounds vaguely familiar. Psalm 22, verse 1. Everybody there is so muddle-headed, all they can do is pick up that word Eli and say, ooh, they're looking for Elijah. Well, hold off, guys. Let's wait and see if Elijah actually comes and takes him down. I mean, is that blind or is that blind? They don't even get it. Jesus is identifying with the sufferer in Psalm 22, 1, and saying, that's me. And the suffering is the suffering of one who is facing the wrath and the anger of God, who feels abandoned by God. <laughs> Nobody gets it. So, somebody comes up with the bright idea that maybe Jesus needs a, a, something to help his speech, I guess. And so they get the, the wine now uh, that's on uh, that's probably dipped in, in a, a container on a sponge and that he gets a sip of that and Jesus partakes of it. He said, well, why would Jesus do that? Well, the truth of it is we're not told, but I would say a couple of things. One, it is seconds before he gives up his spirit. So if you're thinking that Jesus is taking this as the anesthetic to help cure his pains, he's been through those. That's not what's going on, and it won't ha act that quickly. In my opinion, if we understood the physiological aspects of our Lord's crucifixion or anybody else's, one of the things you do is you cut off the wind. You're literally causing that person to, to suffocate. I believe that, in effect, our Lord is, is getting a dose of Listerine to clear his throat because he has something to say, and he wants it said very clearly. It's my take. You can read that as you like. Now, watch this. Jesus cries out, and I, and I add, Matthew says, again. Jesus cries out in a loud voice, again. So there must be two outcries at least, right? So here's the way I see it. The first outcry is, John, it is finished. It's over. It's complete. Finished. The second is, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now think about that for one second. When he says it is finished, I think you have a huge transition because Jesus has moved to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To, it is finished, what is finished? The atoning work of Christ for our sins. It's done. It's over. That's why he can say, Father, into your hands 
I commend my spirit. I think the intimacy of the Son with the Father renews at that instant in time because the suffering is finished. So I take it that the second time is the time when he commends his spirit to the Father. And at that time, simultaneously, he gives up his life and dies. And that death is a miraculous death. Pilate's amazed by it. Everybody's surprised. It's too soon. By the way, the centurion, when he saw how Jesus died, makes his response. So Jesus gives up his spirit, breathes his last, and dies. The turning of the tide. Let's come back to that subject. In my opinion, there is a major shift that takes place in this whole crucifixion scene. It started with the, uh, the, the, the thief on the cross. is amplified by the darkness for three hours. And then instantaneously, in conjunction with our Lord's giving up his spirit, what happens? A huge earthquake, right? Huge earthquake occurs. And one of the effects of that earthquake, I'm not quite sure how the, the, the rending of the veil happens, but somehow it seems that is related. Although I don't think anybody standing at the foot of the cross would have gotten that yet. But the tombs were open. Now, I, was, I got to thinking about this. Where would the tombs be? Well, I mean, I know if you've been to, to, to Jerusalem and you've looked across uh, the Kidron, you know, you've got this literally this whole sea of, of white uh, gravestones across the, the way on the Mount of Olives. But isn't it interesting that Joseph of Arimathea has a tomb hewn out of stone that is there on a garden, and the big benefit of it is it is close to where Jesus was crucified. Now remember, you've got a time crunch coming on. He's got to be buried quickly. So he's, quick, he's close to that. Here's my take. It's only my opinion. I think that when that earthquake occurred, some of the tombs right nearby opened up. How would you feel as you looked on and saw a few people walking out of their tombs? Yeah, I mean, i got to say, folks, that ought to make an impression on you. Jesus' resurrection hasn't occurred yet, but it's coming. <laughs> you can call this the first fruits. It's coming. That's what Matthew tells us. The earthquake comes. You remember the, the uh, enemies of our Lord Jesus, the religious leaders, went to Pilate and said, Jesus claimed he would rise from the dead. Somebody's liable to steal his body and make it look like he did. So Pilate says to them, go and make it as secure as you can. Go ahead, give it a try. But now the tombs are opening and something miraculous is taking place. That's when the centurion makes his statement. And he says, a la Luke, surely this is a, the word is either innocent or righteous. It, it really means it's the same word. So Surely this man is righteous. Surely this man is innocent. You can't be guilty and righteous at the same time. That's Luke. When you go over to Mark, it's surely this man is God's son. But Matthew adds something to this. And if I can get to the right place on my notes, uh, I'll see it. 
It says in verse 54 of Matthew 27. Now, when the centurion, get this folks, and those with him who were guarding the tomb, who were those? The soldiers who had been mocking Jesus just a little earlier, all those people guarding the body of our Lord Jesus, the ones who divided his garments, they see what happens in conjunction with Jesus' death, and they are extremely terrified. I, I take it that's a little more than scared. Extremely terrified. And they say, truly this one was God's son. All right, I got to get something off my chest. I get so mad with the commentaries, I could spit sometimes. And this is one of the places. Good commentators make statements like this. We know that this centurion was a pagan and he was viewing this through his own grid of Roman gods, blah, blah, blah. You know, he couldn't have meant what he said. The text says he glorified God. It's, it's like the sailors on board the ship, you know, when, when Jonah gets chucked overboard. They're not worshiping their pagan gods. They're worshiping Jonah's God. Now, I believe just in what they have heard. Some of these guys may have been at the trial of Jesus. They may have been at the arrest of Jesus. But these people have heard the accusations hurled at Jesus. They have heard Him mocked for claiming to be the Son of God, for claiming to be the Messiah, for being the one the Father loves. So when they see what happens, you know what they say? Those things are true. Those things are true. This isn't some half-baked thing. And I, All right, I'll go one more step with you. Give a centurion a break. Look, Matthew chapter 8. Remember? Centurion comes and says, My servants, you know, is near death and whatever. And Jesus says, Okay, I'll come. They say, No, 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 no. You, you don't have to come. I, too, am a man under authority. And I understand that with your authority, you don't have to be there. Just say the word. What does Jesus say to him? I have never seen faith in all of Israel that matches yours. Why don't we say that of this centurion? I believe this man saw the validation of everything Jesus claimed to be and he acknowledges it to the glory of God. By the way, it's the only time in Mark that a man says, Son of God. Anyway, I'm with this guy. I like him a lot. But I'm also very aware of the fact the other soldiers have really changed their tune. Is this not a different environment now than what we had? Mockery of Jesus. Now, this is Jesus. He is what he says to be. One of the thieves has come to faith. Centurion and perhaps some of the soldiers have come to faith. Wow! And a couple of guys were about ready to come out of the rocks as you'll see in our text. Okay, so this is the Son of God. The, the crowd goes away, according to Luke, beating their breasts. Everybody knows something horrible has happened on that day. Something terrible has happened. Nobody's smiling at some victory they thought they might have gotten. Now, John goes on to add the, the amount, the, the uh, description of the fact that because it was early. Now, remember, crucifixion, was not just a nice, clean way to take somebody out of life. 
it was a nice, long, unclean way of making the sinner pay the maximum penalty. I mean, you look today and, you know, people say, well, the stuff they inject is cruel and unusual. <laughs> you know, the guy takes 10 minutes or whatever to die. It's cruel and unusual. The, the noose, the firing squad, whatever it is, cruel and unusual. No, this is cruel and unusual. And, and, and yet the process was drawn out so long so that when the word goes to Pilate, and Joseph of Arimathea says, can I have the body? Pilate says, is he dead already? <laughs> it's too early. But again, it's Jesus who gave up his spirit. The other guys had to have their legs broken, not Jesus. And as John tells us, that fulfills scripture. And once again, we find the women, faithful women, looking on, watching what's taking place. Phase four, the burial of our Lord Jesus. It's the day of preparation. That means that the eating of the Passover is coming. Remember, that's why they wouldn't go into Pilate's uh, inner chambers and defile themselves. Now they're pressing six o'clock, the beginning of a new day, and that means they've got a very small window of time in which to get the body down and get it buried, uh, or they're going to have all kinds of, of ceremonial issues. So time is of the essence. And all of a sudden, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, unexpectedly appears. Now, let's take a look at what we're told about him. Matthew says he was a rich man. Mark tells us he was a highly regarded member of the council. Some brainy commentator says, we're not sure it's the Sanhedrin. Get a life! What does it say? He did not concur with their opinion. You think he just emailed them to tell them his protest? Get over it. Okay. Uh, my blood pressure will go down any minute now. He's a good and righteous man, according to Luke. Now get this. He is, Matthew and John, a disciple of Jesus albeit a secret disciple because of his fear of the Jews. I was talking to somebody in the, in, the, in the middle hour and it suddenly dawned on me the connection. You're saying, okay, where did Nicodemus come from? Well, he was obviously in the Sanhedrin. Uh, and, and here he is now joining up with Joseph of Arimathea. Do you remember? It's Nicodemus who comes, the text tells us, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, John 3. In John 7, when the Sanhedrin uh, orders the temple police to arrest Jesus and bring him, and the temple police say, man, we never heard him talk like this. And, and then, you know, they're all bent out of shape, and it's Nicodemus who says to them, wait a minute, wait a minute, isn't there such a thing as the constitution and due process of the law? You know, and they're saying, you're not one of those stupid crowd too, are you? I wonder if it was that moment when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus got their heads together and said, I feel the same way. I don't know. But all of a sudden, somehow these guys are working together in this process of getting the body of our Lord and burying him. The grave, Matthew says, was his own grave. Luke says it's not secondhand. It's new, never been used. And Mark tells us it was carved out of the rock. John tells us it was in a garden that was there close to the place Jesus was crucified and that it was somehow there in this garden scene. That must have been quite a tomb, folks. I would take it. I mean, you don't see many places like that carved out of the rock and whatever with a beautiful garden 
around it, but that's the way it's described. And it says, when they placed him in the tomb, they covered it with a, a large stone. And then there's Nicodemus, who's uh, joining in. And we're told they purchased linen and 75 pounds of spices. I think when you read the other accounts, your inclination is to say they didn't have time to do anything. This text says they did. They wrapped it with linen. They may not have done the job they wanted to do. They (laughs) surely didn't do the job the women would have done. And they're going to come fix it later, they think. But they wrap Jesus' body, place it in the tomb. And that's when we read of the security that's being uh, granted for the tomb. Okay, here we go. Conclusion and application. This has got to be understood as one of the great and crucial texts of all of the Word of God. Does it not? This is not just a crucial text. It is a critical event. It is the critical event, the crux, if I may say, of the whole biblical picture. It's, it's the thing that we celebrate every week. Do you think we can fathom the depths of this in one message? We've got every Sunday to ponder the magnitude and the implications of Jesus' death on that cross. It's the message of the gospel. When we preach Jesus, we preach the cross of Jesus. When we live our lives, we talk to people about taking up their cross and suffering in the steps of Jesus. It's everything, folks, not just something. Uh, Notice the convergence of a couple of things that were interesting to me. In this text, you see the convergence of man's great sin. Would you not agree with me? Man doesn't look too good here. (laughs) Doesn't look too good at all. I mean, this is not a text to go to improve your self-esteem, folks. Self-esteem goes out the window. What we see here is the magnitude of man's sin. And it's there in convergence with the grace of God. So when Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, this text shows it. Yeah, we sure are. We're world-class sinners. The other thing we see is this. Interesting that in our text and in the account of all the Gospels, we see the convergence of the innocence of Christ and his sacrifice. You see, that declaration made by the centurion is critical The declaration made by the one thief to the other is critical. This man is innocent. So that when we see the death of Jesus, we see the death of the spotless lamb without sin. That's what makes his sacrifice distinct from any other. That's why we celebrate the bread and the wine. The bread symbolizes the perfection and innocence of the Savior This emphasizes the sacrifice of his blood. Okay, back to your notes. I know I crammed these in. You didn't even see them in your notes, did you? That's because they're bonus points. Notice the change of mood that takes place. And I have to say this. I've always thought of this whole account. I've always thought of this as the darkest moment in human history And that somehow the light that shines on this event from the resurrection clears it all up. I'm changing my position. 
I think that the events surrounding the death of Christ, set aside the resurrection for a minute, there's certainly prophecy of that and the raising of those bodies out of those tombs. I believe the events of the death of Jesus are so compelling, men came to faith before the resurrection. That's what happens, I think, with Joseph of Arimathea. That's what happens with respect to, to Nicodemus. Don't you have to say, folks, here are two guys who are afraid of the Sanhedrin. They disagree, but they're afraid. They're afraid of what they might do. And at the very worst moment in their lives, they say, I'm with him. I'm with him. The other guy on the cross. I'm with Jesus. Hey, folks, that's not the time to identify with a dead man. But the evidence at the crucifixion is so powerful that people came to faith there. And the resurrection confirmed it. Yes. Not downplaying the resurrection. I'm saying God has His fingerprints on this event. God is saying, this is my Son. Believe Him. Oh, I'm getting excited. Okay. The cross is the measure of man's sin, God's grace. The crucifixion reveals the folly of those who say, Jesus is just one of the ways in which men can get to heaven. Tell God that after you read this account of what happened to his son. My friends, I don't think God's going to say, Oh, oh, you decided to do good works. Well, sure, we'll take that. The cross of Jesus Christ is the way, my friend, the way. God is an accepting plan B. And anybody that talks about hell in the way, in my next point, in a way that undermines its reality, its eternality, its horribleness, they better read this text again. This is a picture of hell, my friend. And it isn't going away. And it's also, for the unbeliever, a picture of their hell should they reject Jesus who suffered hell in their place. This is a picture of the severity of sin. So I have to end this way. My friend, I don't know who all of you are, but this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Man is a wretched sinner. We see him just performing at, at peak performance in his sin in our text. God is a gracious and righteous God who through his son paid the penalty for what men deserve. And somehow when people come to trust in the Lord Jesus and this event, this death in their behalf, their lives are forever changed. Their sins are forever forgiven. Their eternity is forever changed. If you've not trusted in him, my friend, then do it now. Do it now. Think about this text. Let this text be the compelling proof. Jesus is who he claimed to be. And if that is true, we need to trust in him. Father, thank you for this great event. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who in spite of the mockery of men, endured the shame. Not to mention your eternal wrath. Father, if there's someone here who has never trusted in him and in what he has done as recorded here, may they do it today. May you help us to look at our suffering always measured in the light 
of the suffering of the Son. May you help us to see the beauty of the cross, even in light of this horrible moment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.